Hi everybody, welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis and we are coming to you today from New Haven, Connecticut and the campus of Yale University and the Yale School of Music. I am really excited about our featured artist for this month, one of my favorite people and one of my favorite musicians and trombone players that I've ever had the opportunity to work with and know in my entire career, uh, the great Scott Hartman. Scott is the trombone teacher here at Yale, and he uh, runs the trombone program as well as coaching chamber music. Uh, he has had an extremely prolific career as a chamber musician, uh, soloist, and educator. He was a member of the Empire Brass Quintet from 1984 through 1993. He recorded 15 CDs with the quintet. He performs regularly with the, uh, a variety of chamber ensembles, including Proteus 7, Millennium Brass, the Brass Band of Battle Creek, the Yale Brass Trio, Summit Brass, and an outstanding group, four of a kind, an amazing trombone quartet. Uh, he has soloed with the Boston Pops Orchestra, the El Paso Symphony, the New Japan Philharmonic, the Caracas Symphony, Korea Philharmonic, National Symphony of Taiwan, among others. Uh, he hails from the lovely town of Elmira, New York. Uh, he received his bachelor's and master's degrees in music from the Eastman School of Music. Uh, his teachers have included David Ritchie, uh, John Marcellus, Douglas Dernan, Alan Ostrander. Uh, he has also held trombone uh, teaching positions at Boston University, New England Conservatory, and Indiana University. And uh, I just had a, a, one of my favorite memories of Scott is when I was a, a very green freshman at the Eastman School of Music back in 1979. One of the first trombone players I heard when I got there was uh, none other than Scott Hartman, and it was one of the most motivating days of my life. I remember hearing he has the best pure legato I've ever heard of any trombone player. And I remember thinking, either I should just get go to the airport and go home right now, or I'm just going to have to work my tail off and see if I can even get close to this. And I've never gotten there. It's still, still trying to get up to that level of uh, beautiful legato playing, but it was such a uh, motivating factor and continued to be throughout my entire time at, at Eastman. So anyway, without any further ado, uh, Scott, welcome to Bone to Pick, and thanks so much for being here today and for hosting us here at this uh, beautiful campus. Well, it's great. It's always good to see you. It always uh, puts a smile on my face <laughs> <laughs> hearing, hearing uh, stories that uh, you know you make up on the spur of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I speak the truth, my friend. <laughs> but it's great to be here. Well, I had the good fortune of driving through your hometown yesterday and thought of you. So why don't we why don't we start with that and talk about uh, and also the good fortune of meeting your wonderful family when I was a student uh, back at Eastman, but. Let's talk about your, your early years in Elmira and what uh, you know, made you get uh, involved in music and maybe in particular the trombone. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, quite a typical story I think uh, for people like us who you know, came from a musical family. Uh, my dad played banjo and guitar. Uh, he, he was born in 1915 so he grew up basically in the Depression and through the World War II mm. era which was uh, obviously the big band era sure and uh, so so he was a real fan of of swing music he was a great dancer and so he loved uh, he loved playing beautiful ballads on banjo of all things that's what he uh -huh. was uh, you know a tenor banjo a four-string banjo and um, so he played round and square dances you know and made basically made his living in the in that period doing this and he met his uh, wife my mom at uh, my uncle's music store who's uh, my uncle Don was a great banjo and guitar player as well made his living in Elmira as a professional musician which is you know sort of unheard of yeah <laughs> <laughs> at this at this stage 
Yeah, uh, so, so musical family, uh, about four siblings. My older sister started clarinet uh, when she was in fourth grade mm -hmm. in the band, and uh, I can remember thinking, you know, just like 20 minutes a day. I don't see how I could possibly find 20 minutes out of my day to, you know, practice uh, an instrument. Um, but when it came time to join the band, then uh, uh, I, I, my dad chose trombone for me. I said, anything that uh, doesn't have a reed on it, basically, <laughs> it's fine with me. Always a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that joke about the definition of a gentleman comes to mind, right? <laughs> um, um, but I obviously uh, started on trombone, enjoyed it, uh, came quite easily, and um, and the school district uh, was a good school district. That was a uh, this was in the middle '60s, I guess, when when I started, or late '60s, and and uh, which is a great time in America mm -hmm. for public schools because yeah, there sure. are a lot of people, you know, benefiting from the GI Bill. They basically uh, funded a lot of musicians to go back to school come teachers, so uh, a lot of musicians came from Europe, so just music was booming in the latter part of the 20th century, so I benefited from a great school district, I had a trombone teacher, Doug Dernan, uh, who was a middle school teacher, but a really fine trombone player, mm. and, and a good teacher, avid teacher, and uh, so I think one thing that I can say is I never had a teacher that steered me wrong, mm -hmm. you know, and wow. which is a really lucky situation. Wow. That's great. Well, and and of course you went uh, to college just up the road a little bit in Rochester, New York. Maybe you could mm -hmm. share some of your thoughts as you look back on that time. I know we obviously intersected there uh, for many of those years, but you were there for a yeah. good amount of time doing both your ma uh, bachelor's and master's. And what, uh, what, do you right. mean, what yeah. are your memories of your time at Eastman? Uh, well, I had, a, I had a great time. It was, uh, I have there was nothing negative at all for me, you know, at that point, because it was I came from a small, a medium small town, and uh, and really didn't travel too much before I got to college, uh, and so Rochester was the big city for me, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, I sort of it was I progressed sort of at a comfortable state for myself, but you know I didn't was, I didn't want to conquer the world immediately, just like one little step at a time was was okay with me, so Rochester was a really nice size community and the school I found to be really, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot, met a lot of great performers, people like you, John Fedchok, Steve Witzer, mm -hmm. uh, just like oh, Mark Lesler, a lot of these people were at school at that time. Vince DiMartino, I still play with Vince and, you know, just like best, yeah. great inspirations. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Vince, for example, he never said a bad thing about any student he ever heard there. He was, mm -hmm. he was uh, maybe close to 30 doing his master at that point but I, I remember that he just like he, he could find something good to say about everybody you know which 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 is a new idea for me <laughs> <laughs> you know which is I, I really I really learned a lot from that um, so I, I had a great time at Eastman met a lot of great people that I still am friends with mm -hmm. you know one just picking up on what you said like uh, when I went to Eastman I, I sort of grew up listening to Tommy Dorsey on recordings Irby Green Bill Watrous, these people were my were my idols. Was, sure. This is in the middle seventies, there just weren't that many recordings. This was pre recordings by Joe Alessi and Christian Lindbergh and uh, you know, these people that changed the the face of uh, in the, the trombone world, the classical trombone world through their solo playing mm -hmm. and recordings. You know, I didn't have that, so I, I heard the the jazz players, which 
you know, are uh, amazing players, of course, mm -hmm. from that mm -hmm. period. Uh, and so that's what I was hoping to be when I went to Eastman. I wanted to be another Jack Teagarden. But, uh, you know, within the first week I heard, uh, you know, people like you, you know, <laughs> you're younger than I am, but uh, uh, people, you know, trombone players uh, playing, playing some jazz and, and it just like, that was so beyond what I had ever imagined I could do, you know, at that <laughs> stage of my life. And, and uh, I just, I, I basically realized at that point that I'm not going to make it in this business <laughs> unless I do something else, you know, sort of, so. I can play legatos. <laughs> Maybe I'll see how well, much money can I make playing I, legato. <laughs> I'm not sure I would agree that you would uh, couldn't make it in that end of the business, but uh, but you certainly found uh, the niche of uh, your playing that's uh, second to none. That's for sure. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think I think about our time uh, in the trombone choir at Eastman and just you know hearing all these great players, Mark Lusk and John Fetchuk and Chris Brayman and. And Kim Scharnberg and and Steve Witzer, of course, and and uh, so many Phil Tolga, you know, just yeah. the names keep coming. I know I'm leaving some great people out, but I had one favorite. I think it was Chris Brain, but I could be wrong. But I remember you played something, some beautiful legato lyrical thing, and and uh, Chris was supposed to come in next or something. And I I could be getting this story wrong. It's been a lot of years, but he just kind of looked at you, didn't come in, and just was like. F you. Because <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> it was so beautiful. It was like, I'm not continuing here. <laughs> yeah, but well, anyway, it's, yeah. I, I agree. It's a special place because of, uh, because of that reason. So, so, so many uh, outstanding yeah. folks. Well, let's, you know, let's you know, move forward a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, you've had such an illustrious professional career, but I think the first thing that, and one of the things that I still associate with you so much is your, your time with the Empire Brass Quintet, and, and you were certainly with them in, in some of their most productive years and, and so many great recordings. I was wondering if you could just share your thoughts about being in the quintet and, you know, some of your favorite memories. And also, I think this is really helpful for our viewers. Um, if I'm, if I may ask you to tell that uh, the audition story about uh, kind of getting off to a little bit of a rocky start when you were <laughs> trying to get through the first piece or whatever it was that you were auditioning, you told me uh, you, I thought it was a great story and it, it speaks so well to when the, you have such great musicianship like yourself, you can overcome uh, a little hiccup or something. But anyway, <laughs> enough. Uh, the, tell uh -huh. us about Empire. Okay. Um, I'd forgotten. I'd, I think I'd repressed that story. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry was, to put you on the spot a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like a breaking the of the ice sort of story. It was like it could only go up from here. So how about just like a, for those, you know, set the stage, you know, for the Empire Brass. Okay. Back in those days, <laughs> you know, this is like 19, I got this job in 1984. And that was, there was just like this little golden period, I think, uh, and from the, from 1980 through the middle 90s, where the the world, the concert and the chamber music world was was open to and ready for chamber music made by brass players, mm -hmm. class, classical, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, you know more pop, you know, appealing to that broader audience. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the Canadian brass they had they had sort of burst out uh, onto the stage, and the Empire Brass, the American Brass, New York. Brass quintet; those four in particular were were sort of leading the way and and creating a new market that hadn't been there. Mm -hmm. You know, the you know the American brass and the New York brass quintet basically created that market in the in the '60s and the '70s, and and then the Canadian brass they 
obviously have this flair for understanding and appealing to a, a broader audience. Yeah, sure. And, and so they were really coming forth in the in the late 70s. The Empire Brass at that point was uh, made up of Sam Palafian, Rolf Smedvig, David O'Hanian. The trombone chair rotated a little bit. Uh, Charlie Lewis played trumpet. Uh, so the trombones, Norman Bolter, Ron Barron, Don Sanders, uh, Mark Lawrence, really fine players. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is a that was a virtuous virtuoso uh, quintet. Right. And and so I sort of got in at that at that point where they had just tried to t uh, to break away from their their other lifelines, basically musicians and and trying to make it in this chamber music world, mm -hmm. which seems to be one of the few times in the in the last hundred years you could actually do that as a with that ensemble. Uh, so my audition. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and just for clarity, then, so at that point, those guys were all doing other work and doing the quintet kind of on the side, or they had already dedicated fully to the quintet. Uh, well, I think the I'm, uh, I may be wrong, but I think I'm correct in saying that the Canadian brass had committed to to becoming 100 percent full-time full brass quintet yeah. mm -hmm. uh, players, devoting themselves to the Canadian brass in the sometime in the late 70s, I think. Mm -hmm. And then the Empire Brass made that jump, I think 1980. Okay. In uh, which case, uh, Rolf Smedvig, Dave O'Hanian left the, the Boston Symphony uh, to do this. Uh, Sam Palafian had been working a lot in Boston and New York, doing a lot of things. Uh, so he sort of dedicated himself to the to the quintet. Uh, mm -hmm. Charlie Lewis, uh, same thing. Okay. Uh, so, so they did that about 1980 or so. And Norman Bolter, who had been playing up to that point, made uh, a number of recordings with the group, decided to stay in the, brass, uh, the Boston. Boston Symphony. Right. And so at that point, uh, Mark Lawrence took a, a year off from the San Francisco Symphony mm -hmm. in order to join the group and, and tour. Uh, so then, it was the fourth year, I think, of, of the, the group's existence as a 100% uh, dedicated to brass quintet okay. group. Okay, you're trying. Yeah. So, sorry to interrupt, we're getting to the close to the audition story. <laughs> My time was off a little. Okay. <laughs> uh <-huh>. So, <laughs> that's all right. And so, so uh, I think I was the ninth trombone player to play in the group, if, I, if uh, you know, depending on how you do your tabulations. But, right. But people, people had uh, sort of come and gone for, for their own reasons. Uh, but there had only been auditions for trombone. <laughs> I think everybody else had been in that group since 1971 or so when I got there. So they've okay. been there 13 years, and, and uh, so they were looking for another trombone player. And now since they had, this, they had begun, become a professional full-time group, uh, they wanted, they had to be serious about it and sort of cover the bases, make sure they got somebody that was, uh, you know, it was worth their time, their trouble to advertise, basically. Sure. So anyway, I, I through one of our connections at Eastman, uh, Don Robinson. Okay. Uh huh. Who, Don, uh, sort of met the group at Tanglewood, where, where the, we had been in residence, uh, and we had a brass quintet seminar there through Boston University for many years, and so Don met the group there, uh, found out there was going to be an opening, and did me a favor by mentioning to Sam Palafian that, you know, he knows a guy, young guy that would be, might do the. Do the job, and mm -hmm. so Sam says, "What's what's his qualifications?" Uh, 
other than the fact that uh, he knows you. <laughs> <laughs> that should be enough for Don. <laughs> That's right. And Don knows everybody. <laughs> uh, so uh, what came back to me anyways is that, you know, Scott can get along with anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was one of my prime <laughs> qualifications that was appealing. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you, young that's players. Right, that's, that's a good right. quality to have. <laughs> Chamber music, it's, uh, you know, you got, it's like being married to the rest of the group. Right, sure. You know, so you really have to be able to get along. So, uh, and Empire Brass was notorious for sort of being sort of one of those places that you'd have to sort of you know, fit in. Otherwise, right. <laughs> you get out. <laughs> uh, so anyway. Uh, so part of the audition was playing. They sent me this bunch of music, uh, you know, a week before and, and, you know, practice that much music and come and audition for us. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit too vague mm-hmm. to cover the basses, uh, but I, I just started leaping through it and playing through it. One of the things that we did in the audition was one of the Robert King uh, transcriptions of, uh, what was it? <laughs> Art of the Fugue, that's right. Oh, okay. Punctus number one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And so that was four measures right there. <laughs> this is this is key to the story. It's just like I was supposed to be able to count those four measures and come in. You know, I think it was like a, uh, the third entrance or fourth entrance. But you know, basically, if I just was smart and just listened to that three times and came in, I would be fine. Right. But I I tried to count and it was. You know, there was the, the half note was getting the beat, and I was just, I can't, we tried this like four times, and, and I just, you know, it was, I was not coming in right, you know, and, and Rolf, Rolf uh, you know, said, okay, you know, what's, what's the matter, don't they teach you how to count up there? <laughs> I got bad time, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, that was, that was, that was, you know, an icebreaker, it was just like, okay. You know, okay, I'm, I'll just sort of live through the next 10 minutes, go about my, the rest of my life, and they'll, they'll never see me again. <laughs> but, uh, but luckily, uh, you know, I, got, I, got, I came in right. You know, Dave Ohanian just like pointed at me and said, play now. And, you know, he, he just like wind me up and start me playing, and then I can, be, I can, I can usually do the job. But. <laughs> so so um, it was good. There, was, there were a number of really good candidates uh, uh, Auditioning at the at that at that point, uh, from what I hear from Sam Palafi and Rolf, Rolf wanted me to uh, sort of win that audition, whereas two or three other people uh, had other opinions about mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. they would have chosen. But uh, Rolf, uh, he you know it's hard to argue with Rolf, so yeah. So right. I have to thank Rolf for sort of weighing in on my behalf. Well, I'm sure he heard you know. The, as everybody does, here's the outstanding qualities in your playing. So whether you were able to come in right on the uh, four bar entrance or not, it was uh, he heard something that he wanted. And, uh, good, good stuff. Um, well, thanks for sharing that story. I, I, I think it's a great story, and I think it just goes to show you, you know, like how how to stay calm under pressure when things aren't going right. Because they're, you know, if you stay, especially somebody with your skill set, it's like it's going to happen and it's going to come around. So it's, it's I think it's a good lesson for younger players to just kind of keep that in the back of your head when things aren't you know necessarily going your way let's talk a little bit about um your time after empire and and i don't quite have the exact chronology of it but i I believe you maybe went back to boston and then and then maybe talk a little bit about your teaching that you were doing at the time and then the, the time you spent in the iu and i also wanted to include this kind of makes the question a little bit on the on the wide side but um, you know, you you kind of made a choice to stay in the in the chamber music world and not 
go orchestral playing, which clearly you could have chosen to go that route if you wanted, and maybe you could talk about if you thought about that at this period following Empire or, or how that actually took place for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, as you know, uh, one always has to sort of be thinking of what am I going to be doing six months from now, a year from now? Is this, is, am I going to keep doing this forever or, or do I want to switch gears? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I got in the quintet. That was my first big job, uh, you know, a job that I could actually put some money in the bank at the end of the month and pay my, mm -hmm. my rent. Uh, and I found that I really liked it. It was actually great playing with the group musically. It was f fabulous. And in, in spite of... You know, uh, you know, it's 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 intense being in a group like that. You know, the rehearsals, the recording, uh, preparation, and the concerts. You know, it could, could be pretty intense. But it was a pretty low, low stress group, in the sense that you know, if people screwed up on a concert and miss a note, who cares? You know, you mm -hmm. got, you've got plenty more notes you can play. Yeah. And so it was actually it was really fun to make music with that ensemble, mm -hmm. and I enjoyed it uh, when I when I was entered that job, we also had a residency as a brass quintet at Boston University, which included uh, some, some private teaching, some chamber music coaching. We ran the chamber music program for brass at Boston University, and then in the summertime, this eight-week Empire Brass Seminar at the Boston University Tanglewood Institute. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, I not only got a job as a trombone player, but I was a, a college professor at this point. Mm -hmm. and. And luckily, I, I had done my music ed degree as well as a performance degree at, at Eastman, and I did uh, a fair amount of substitute teaching. Yeah, you know, that was my preparation for becoming a college professor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> teaching, teaching gym in the kindergarten. I, I did it all. I could see that being helpful. Uh, Actually, it was. <laughs> it was. It's basically crowd control. That's what the <laughs> teaching. You know, stay one step ahead of uh, the people you're in charge of, and you're all set. You know, that's what I came away with, and it really that was a lifesaver. Really, yeah, it was yeah. the best thing I ever did. Yeah. You know, uh, so uh, so when I left the Empire Brass, nine years at the Empire Brass, and then uh, I stayed on at Boston University as an adjunct teacher, which was uh, so, sort of what. I didn't really know what I was going to be doing after after that point, um, and I, I basically decided I didn't want to pursue the orchestra route because I really enjoyed playing chamber music, solos, and, and teaching. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to pursue that lifestyle if I could. Uh, John Swallow had just retired from New England Conservatory at that same time that I left the Empire Brass, and and uh, it seems that they. New England Conservatory sort of considered me in a in a similar sort of category as John Swallow. John Swallow played with the New York Brass Quintet for many years. Uh, uh, played in New York, so just basically a lot of chamber musician uh, experience. So that that was sort of someone they were trying to whose fills whose shoes they wanted to fill, and so mm -hmm. they thought that maybe I could do that. Mm -hmm. So luckily, I got that job adjunct also at NEC at, at that point. Mm. And so that gave me enough money that I could pursue my uh, chamber music career. And so for the next three years, I lived up in the mountains of New Hampshire and sort of traveled out of there, came down to Boston and taught, and uh, gradually accumulated thousands and thousands of dollars of debt. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to go the other way with the thousands of dollars, but uh, sorry to hear that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 
you know, paper, you know, paper with you know negatives or pluses. You know, all adds up. The you know, it doesn't make too much difference. It's right. sitting over there on the desk. And, you know, as long as nobody's knocking on your door, who cares? <laughs> but they started knocking. <laughs> you know, so so uh, I. I saw Alan Dean uh, on a gig, actually, that we did. Uh, it was fun. It was uh, playing with the David Ohanian Ensemble, ah. which was an all-Armenian brass quintet yes. <laughs> play, playing at the 100th anniversary of uh, an Armenian church in Fresno, California. Mm. And, Lovely. Uh, yeah, I, I was Harkmanian for that night. <laughs> <laughs> you do have an Armenian quality, but you haven't been uh, to talk to you about that's that. That's right. <laughs> I, I love falafel as much as the next guy. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, Alan says, uh, you know, Alan's not very Armenian either, <laughs> but no. uh, but uh, he was teaching at Yale at that point, and John was was uh, about ready to retire uh, from Yale, and so he asked me if if I'd be interested in that this job, mm-hmm. and so no, you know what, I've, I've hopscotched the head one one job. <laughs> it was, this was, this was how, that was how I got this job, you know. Alan sort of brought it to my attention. Before that, it was Stephen Burns, mm-hmm. who uh, who I who's from Boston, but was teaching at Indiana University. He's a trumpet player, soloist, conductor, right? Uh, and uh, he was teaching at IU, and I saw him as I was walking into BU one one day, and he was walking out, and he said, "Hey, you know, Keith Brown is retiring, you know." At IU, do you think you'd be interested in applying for that job? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's that's the that's how I do my homework. You know, yeah. <laughs> I just I just prowl around and, <laughs> and wait for somebody to offer me you know opportunities. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's interesting how you you know you clearly made a decision though about we're not going to go orchestral and, and you were enjoying being a chamber player and 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 part of that I'm sure is the ability to you know you got to be here today and you're over here tomorrow and you. You know, you got a lot of irons and a lot of fires, and, and trying to keep all those things uh, uh, going. Well, you, you talked about how you got the job here at Yale. It might be great to just jump into that right now. And, and uh, for those of you who haven't seen the, the Yale website, I, I really uh, thanks for sending over that link. Scott sent me a link of the, the trombone department and talks a little bit. A very short video, but really well done. And, and I, I really got a feeling for what it's like here for, for the students. And I learned about the, uh, the program, and I also learned you know more about your approach to teaching but um maybe you can talk to us about the program here i noticed you, there's only six students so it's very uh um selective and competitive i'm sure to get in but once you're here it's uh so much attention and, and uh, focus it sounds like a, a wonderful program and you're obviously doing you know great work here so tell us about how how it's been here at, at yale for yourself mm-hmm. oh well uh, it is it is a great institution. That's one thing that I sort of I, I realized uh, through being with the Empire Brass. I, I after a while you start you know you ask people ask you what what do you do? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, well I play with this group called the Empire Brass. Okay, so it's sort of an easy way to identify oneself and sort of somebody can say oh yeah I see what you mean. Uh, and uh, so there's that, but uh, you know so, so it's one thing to be associated with a a good institution as opposed to, you know, it's not, it's if you're going to attach yourself to an institution, attach yourself to the best. Mm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, so Absolutely. that's one thing I learned in, in that ensemble and, and, uh, and Yale is uh, obviously an institution that is a yeah. world, that's a name everybody knows. Yeah, no question. And, and uh, I find that this, this school is, you know, lives up to its reputation as it's, the administration is excellent. We've got, 
money, which money runs everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a great faculty, the facilities are great, and so therefore, and, and our mandate is, as a school of music is to, is to be the best mm -hmm. imaginable. Mm -hmm. uh, so oftentimes people don't realize that the school of music at Yale is graduate level only, so it's post-baccalaureate. Mm -hmm. And so, for the most part, everybody that comes, to, uh, the most, most of the musicians that come here uh, as students are here for generally two years at a time, mm -hmm. for a two years master's program or a two year uh, sort of parallel program or for maybe for their DMA, uh, be here but maybe three years. Uh, but the model is that they basically have 150% of uh, an orchestral sitting uh, sort of uh, roster. So if, as opposed to four trombones, they'll have six trombones. Mm. So two bass trombones, two tenors, four tenors. Same for the other winds. And um, it doesn't have a jazz program necessarily. It's primarily, its focus is orchestral and chamber music, as well as music theory, music theory the mm -hmm. composition. And uh, so, like I say, it's a, it's, really high level and uh, we have been really fortunate enough to be able to attract the students that are they go on and become professionals mm -hmm. so we're basically competing uh, with the other top institutions uh, Juilliard Colburn mm -hmm. Indiana University mm -hmm. Northwestern and I think you may have touched on it but I, I noticed it's if, if you get into the program, it's all scholarship, and and in fact they get a stipend. So, uh, right, sounds like a phenomenal <laughs> deal if you're able to uh, get in. Don't, don't <laughs> miss this opportunity. <laughs> you know, uh, when I watched the video, a young lady who I I should have wrote down her name, but she's a wonderful player. Sounded like I heard her playing a little bit, but she talked about how, and I thought this was a wonderful thing to bring up. Um, you know, uh, she talked about nerves and how she was getting nervous. And every musician gets nervous. And if you don't, then you're you're lying because on some level, I think we all get nervous. And even people like Miles Davis, who played how many shows did he play? You know, thousands of performances, yeah. and he always said he always got butterflies. So <laughs> it's okay to get nervous. But she she talked about it, and I I wanted to ask you specifically because we're talking about the. You were kind enough to share the audition story with Empire, and I'm sure you were nervous for that. And then, and then when things start messing up a little bit, we all tendency, or the tendency is to get more nervous. And she said that you really helped her a lot, and it just made me think I wanted to ask you about that, how you uh, think of that and how you approach dealing with nerves, especially if things are maybe not going so well. How, but I was curious how you, uh -huh. how you look at that. Well, I've, uh, I've noticed that, you know, so... People don't just walk around being nervous for the most part, right? <laughs> they've, got a, they've got a reason to be nervous, right? right. There's something that they're afraid is going to happen. And, um, uh, you know, for drama players, it's, you know, we're talking about performance anxiety usually. Right. So I found, I, I've just, I just noticed myself that you know, playing in a chamber music ensemble and we play, you know, this is great. I can't remember what, you know, my life before that necessarily, <laughs> you know, what I was really thinking. I don't think I ever got that nervous in a performance, uh, but, you know, go out, go out and play play concerts, and we would play, say, seven concerts a week on tour. Mm -hmm. And so the good thing is, uh, you know, you, you'd practice and you'd get ready to play these concerts, and then you'd have to go out there and do it for the audience, and you could screw up, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but 
So maybe you're missing up. Maybe you miss, you know, miscount. You're not coming right. You know, two minutes, two seconds later, you're playing and your things are fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so it just sort of occurred to me and my and my colleagues, like I said a minute ago, they didn't they didn't care. You know, you screw up, you screw up. You know, you know, don't play out of tune. You know, but if you miss a note, who cares? Mm -hmm. uh, so. So that was really great. So I, I ended up realizing that if I missed this note tonight, and this happened, you know, da di da 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 da. So way better, way da 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 da. We used to do this West Side Story thing, right? You know, high D, and I missed it like 47 times in a row. You know, night after night, after night after night, and I'd get closer and closer, and I started to figure out, okay, this is what it feels like when it's going to, you know, work. And every once in a while it would work, and then finally I figured out, okay, now I can control this so that I can do it every night. Right. You know, so that was what a what a great luxury that is to just like to to have one shot at it, and and to go over and over and know that you're going to be able to, you know, you don't get it tonight, you can try it tomorrow night. Right. Right. You know, so I just ended up not caring anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because I I realized that you know the audience didn't care. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't care if I miss that note or not. Mm -hmm. You know, my friends don't care. Yeah. You know, so why should I care? <laughs> you know, you know, because you, you know you don't want you know you want to do it, but but you know if, if you do it, fine. If you don't, then life goes on. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make you doesn't change your life. So that's my my, my mantra is that it doesn't really make any difference, and and uh, and I find it's true. You know. Yeah. I find that people in the audience are basically there because they want they want to hear what you what you're doing, and they like. You know, they, they don't have to stay. You know, they don't. They, you know, they can go and have a nice meal after they hear you screw up. <laughs> you know, they they really don't care. You know, if you screw up, it makes them feel better because they can do better than that themselves. They think. Right. Right. Uh, so I mean, it's basically you can't lose. Either they love you or or they uh, empathize with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just so like that's the bottom line for me. It's just like you know, you really don't have to care. You know, uh, and. You know, you can find, think of all the reasons why you shouldn't care. <laughs> so, I mean, you can do all these sort of relaxation and meditation things and uh, take Enderol, uh, you know, which I've never taken that, so I don't know what that feels like. Uh, but but I, I, I basically talk myself into the fact that I, it's not that important that I screw up or not, you know. Well, that's great, great uh, advice and a great way to look at it. And I know, I know when it, it's a matter of taking the importance level off. I think you know, obviously, you care about playing and wanting to play your best all the time. But, and I'm sure getting to to work so much with Empire and a group that cares just about how the music is feeling and and all of that, and whether you as and I say it all the time as well in clinics. It's like we're brass players. We're going to crack notes, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, I'm going to go to work tomorrow and I'm going to crack <laughs> notes. I don't know which ones they are yet, but yeah. you know, probably ones that I've cracked before. <laughs> Hopefully, but yeah. you're 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 absolutely right. Your ability to just forget about that and not be too obsessed about it is, yeah. is great. Buddy Rich talked about that, Great right? advice. Yes, he did, yeah. <laughs> among other things. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, let's talk about, you know, I mentioned in the introduction, you're playing in so many different groups all the time, and, uh, you know, from uh, the Yale Trio to Four of a Kind, which is one of my favorite groups with Joe Alessi and uh, Blair Bollinger and Mark Lawrence, who doesn't get any better than the four of, uh, four of you guys. Has it always been that? That was always the four members. Yeah. So that was the... Anyway, can you share just a couple of thoughts, maybe, uh, of some of your favorite uh, groups that you play with? Uh, just kind of some memories that uh, that mm -hmm. make you smile thinking of uh, some of those ensembles. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so just like a truth in advertising type thing. I, I, uh, at this point, 
uh, a lot of these groups we don't play that often these these days. Just sure, like the sure. business, as you know, is really tough. You know, like yeah. I said, that there was that golden period, uh, the '85 to '95. Um, so we basically do these. I'm still a member of these groups, and we get together, but but we don't necessarily try to make a living. Sure, sure. So, uh, so lots of lots of great stories. It's just uh, music is a, is self-indulgent when it comes mm. down to it, right? You're trying to make a living, you know, doing this, and you know, it's it's you know, good luck to you. <laughs> you know, why should you do it? You don't do it to get rich. You just no. do it because you love to do it. Yeah. You know, and it's fun to play for you oneself, and it's fun to play with other people, and fun to play for an audience. It's just like it's it's just it's just gives you good feelings. So that's why we do it. Sure. So that's why I play with these groups. I just like they're people that I love to make music with. I love to hang out with. Um, uh, and I, you know, people that are like me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like hanging out with people that want that like to live their life and do things that I like to do. Um, so it's really fun to, you know, it's really uh, it was a real his treat to play with the four of a kind, for example, Joe Alessi and Mark Lawrence and Belair Bollinger. And, uh, you know, it's basically a hobby. Those guys play, make their living in an orchestra, and, and every time they leave for a week, they probably lose money. Right, right. right? Yeah, so, so we just do it for fun. I remember one, you know, Joe's got a, a reputation for sort of being an intense guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> One of our favorite lines from Joe was when uh, we got together. The first week we ever played together was when we did our first recording. We just got together and, and said, okay, let's make a recording and we'll see what happens. So we spent a couple of days sort of uh, just sitting there playing and figuring out how to, you know, what happens uh, when Mark plays first, what happens when Joe plays first. And we had to figure out how to sort of lead, you know, just just invent an ensemble and sort of... Right. And what's it like playing third trombone to Mark and things like this, right? <laughs> uh, so then, so we did that for several days, and then the, the the they turned on the mics and we started putting things together. And and uh, Joe had to get back to New York for a concert, I think, one of these nights. We we're recording at Curtis, and we came back after lunch, and and Joe was was in the hall by himself there, and. He had this look on his face. We knew something was up. <laughs> you know, Joe's, you know, either he's just gotten bad news or we're going to get some bad news. <laughs> so, and I think it's going to be the latter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's what we figured, too. <laughs> um, but... Um, Joe's—he's a consummate gentleman, actually. He's, he's a great guy, no, yeah. and so so he so so we we all got our horns and warmed up, and Joe sort of stood there and he sort of looked at us and he said, "Gentlemen, you realize that I hold no malice towards any one of you." <laughs> <laughs> Etc. You know, so that was that was his icebreaker. There, so just like, okay, you know, I just want you guys to feel good about this, but I'm going to say next. Um, but so he was just uptight because you know things were not going as fast as, as we needed to record, and and he had to catch a train. Uh, but that was just like you know, so we used that line a lot, you know, gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, and that was that was great because you know this is this is you know Joe takes you know playing trombone seriously as. To of all course. of us, yeah, yeah, you know, and so we, you know, it's a personal investment in what we do, and and uh, you know, it's just like we. Uh, that's one of the nice things about that group is just we have such a good time, just hanging and laughing with each other, you know, yeah. and, and realizing that, you know, this is not the end of the world. Yeah, 
Uh, that being said, I remember Joe saying at one time, uh, you know, that the, the fear of missing a note is what kept him practicing. You know, <laughs> you, know like, you know, it's just like you know, everybody, uh, like everybody gets nervous. You know, yeah, and that's that's Joe's thing. I, yeah. I gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> Everybody's got their own uh, approach to how to deal with it, I suppose, and that's a, that's one. But that's a great story. I hold no malice to you. <laughs> I'm gonna start using it myself. Um, well, let's shift over to, you know, you've, you've done a lot of solo playing and maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, how that's different for you in terms of playing in an ensemble and maybe a couple of favorite things. It must have been nice to solo with Boston Pops and then you've been all over the world. I mean, you know, you've done quite a few things in Asia, but you could just touch on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, just sort of a little background again. So when I decided I wasn't going to be a jazz player <laughs> back at Eastman, you know, and then sort of like after, after uh, sort of coming out of my drunken stupor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> facing the world again, I said, okay, I guess I'll be an orchestra player, you know, that's how I can make a living. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to do that, you know, so prepare for that, uh, going through college. I had no idea that you could make a living as a chamber musician, you know, it's just like people were not doing it when, I, right. when we were in school. Yeah. Uh, but things had changed enough by the time I got out of school that Got in the Empire Brass, and we did a lot of, lot of uh, gigs with orchestra. So we'd be featured with orchestra, and and you know in the course of a quintet concert or quintet concert with orchestra, there would be a trombone solo, right? So, so basically, I, I you know gradually became more and more comfortable playing solo, and it was something that even though when I was thinking of being an orchestral player as a uh, professional. I decided uh, that that would be a great way to pay the mortgage, and then I could do whatever I wanted to do on the side. Mm-hmm. Because I realized I like to play chamber music and and solo, mm-hmm. and it's just again self-indulgent and fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. You're uh, so, so self-indulgent. So I just I know, keep that's coming what everybody back to says that, right? about me. <laughs> It's all about me <laughs> and legato. Does anybody who's not self-indulgent, it's you, but go ahead. <laughs> it's just like doing what you want to do, right? You know, hopefully I'm not stepping on anybody's toes in the right. process. But, um, you know, it's basically chamber music. You know, to play a solo, you're playing chamber music with an orchestra, mm-hmm. with a, you know, with an intermediary, you know, who's conducting. Mm-hmm. And um, it sort of brings us, it's basically making music together, mm-hmm. you know, which, and you know, I, I really, I have to say, I really am intrigued with this whole idea of making music together. Mm-hmm. You know, my my wife's a conductor, mm-hmm. uh, and and just like this whole idea of this physicality of expressing music so that people can play together is intriguing, and and having spent a career playing music without a conductor, uh, you have to be really sensitive to sound, and so the implication of where the music's going, and and part of sort of physically being aware of what people are sort of how they're moving sort of helps helps you sort of know where the music's going and um, so so working with a conductor working with an orchestra is just an extension of this it's really uh, sort of momentum you know in terms of sound and time and so uh, and and then what latitude do you have as a soloist expressively you know within the context of what's going on you know you don't you know as a soloist i basically have to play so the conductor knows where i am mm-hmm. and can anticipate where i want to go so that they can tell the orchestra show the orchestra and and i end up having to accompany uh, especially a large ensemble 
like this. Uh, you know, you, in a rehearsal, you you try to show them what you want to do, what tempos you want, how loud you want to play, et cetera, et cetera, where you want to go, how intense you want to be. Uh, and then when you get to the performance, uh, whereas you might have just sort of like sort of rammed it down their throat a little bit in rehearsal and just like not give an inch, you know, it's just like you play this way, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. uh, in a performance, you basically have to go with the flow. You, know? yeah. you don't want to derail the whole event mm -hmm. just because, you know, they're not playing your tempo. So you end up sort of, so that's one of the fun things about being a soloist is that you still are not totally self uh, in, you know, you, you don't do exactly what you want to do all the time. You have to be aware of the musicians playing with you and sort of this interaction is always there. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really find fun about wow. music. That's great, great. I haven't heard it put like that. It's a really great way to say it. And, and you're right. I mean, that the you're playing with the orchestra, but with the conductor, you together you're creating. It's not just about I'm the soloist, take it or leave it. You know. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. That's yeah. Great way to say it. Um, I just wanted to shift gears a little bit and and mention two people who were uh, very special to you and and one in particular to myself, who unfortunately we've lost recently, and just wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of uh, have a thought about and share maybe a quick story about each one of them. Uh, one being who passed away this past year, Rolf Smedvig, who obviously was a very uh, important person in your career. And then the other gentleman is our old, late, uh, late great Steve Witzer, who's a, a very dear friend of ours. And uh, I still can't believe he's gone, but every time I think about him, puts a smile on my face and his, <laughs> uh, his spirit and energy uh, lives on uh, like crazy for all of us. But uh, just wanted you to have an opportunity to, to speak about those two uh, incredible uh, yeah. people. Yeah, good, good idea. Yeah, it's sort of uh, two really important people in my life. You know, mm -hmm. Rolf, Rolf, I spent a lot of years playing with Rolf, and, uh, and uh, he was one of the most important influences on my musical thought and, mm -hmm. and abilities, and, uh, and basically without him sort of advocating in my behalf to have my, the job that I started with, uh, you know, who knows what mm -hmm. I'd be doing now. Mm -hmm. uh, so great, great guy, just like an absolute uh, musical, purely musical guy. Mm -hmm. you know, just like had absolute finesse, you know, one of the m most graceful, finesseful trumpet players I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. and, um, and a great leader, really great. Uh, this is one thing that I, you know, I do a lot of chamber music coaching and uh, brass coaching, usually there's a trumpet player involved, you know, they get the melody a lot, right? <laughs> So, you know, that's what they do. <laughs> that's what they do. That's right. And so, you know, you know, you know, if it weren't for trumpet players, I would be flipping burgers someplace, yeah. right? Me you know? too. <laughs> no, no question. <laughs> that's right. You know, it's just like, you know, somebody's got to play the melody and somebody's got to make them sound good. And that's my job. Make them sound as good as possible. Make their job as easy as possible, right? So that's one thing that Rolf liked about me. He said, that I was like, I, I was, I'm a supportive you know, musician as a yeah. chamber player. Yeah. And so, so he's a great leader and, you know, I think every, you know, every trumpet player out there, you know, don't apologize for laying it down. Yeah. You know, just like, you know, without that, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, so it's not my job to lead if you're playing melody. Yeah. So, I mean, Rolf was so good at that. Wow. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, I had a great time, you know, playing tennis with him and skiing with him and, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a good hang. Yeah. So, you know, Here's to you, Ralph. Yeah. Wherever you indeed. are. Yeah. And Steve, you know, it's like one of the most charismatic guys I've ever met. You yeah. Know, just like yeah. trombone player, 
you know, uh, you know, inspiration. You know, he was he was the leader of the trombone pack. I think at East when yeah. we were there. You know, there were a lot of. I mean, in various ways. I mean, he was Mr. Classical. Yeah. So 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 he wasn't. You know, there's Fedchak was there, Dave Sloniker, you were there, Kim Scharnberg. So obviously, you know, Steve wasn't competing with you guys and Phil Tugga. You know, yeah. Phil Tugga is like one of my heroes. Yeah. You know, Still you know, pound just, for pound, maybe the best guy there. You know, yeah, uh, as yeah. a trombone player. But Incredible. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but Steve, you know, he's like he had the attitude, and he was like the can do, and you know, I will do no matter what. You know, so like he practiced four hours a day, and sort of his lips started growing. You know, he started to look like a platypus. You know, <laughs> after year his lip get longer and longer and more muscular. You know, he was just like really strong, uh, but just like the greatest. Uh, uh, he just loved what he did. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, funny guy. You know, I just got all kinds of images of of him. We we took. Don Robinson and I and Steve, you know, took a trip through Europe, you know, after graduating from college. And oh, I remember when you guys yeah, did that trip. Eastman, yeah, yeah. Eastman Festival. And, yeah, it was just like so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just like, uh, Steve is Norwegian descent, and so we went as is Rolf. Hmm. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, so we, we we rediscovered or discovered some of Steve's relatives in, in Norway. You know, on this trip, and uh, and went to visit the, the place where Steve's grandmother and her thirteen siblings, you know, grew up in this in this wow. cabin oh, I up had on no the mountain. As well. Yeah, yeah, it was just like way back in the woods and in uh, in Norway, and and they took us back to the homestead. You know, we went and stayed three or four days with them, and they, you know, just treated us like you know long lost relatives, of course. And and they, for one thing, they they. They uh, had the strawberry season, and they had these big, they had this big bowl of ripe strawberries heaped like this with fresh, freshly made whipped cream, Oof. and we just like had this, you know, 30 people, and we polished this thing off in like an hour, <laughs> and it's just oh, we we're sick, you know. But we wanted more, of course, and so they came out with another one just as big, you know. It's just wow. That, like that and that and breaking into the family homestead or what I remember <laughs> we you know hiked up the mountain to the where this family grew up and lived and and it hadn't been used for a long time and so we, so we found a way through we pried some boards open and there was this <laughs> this reindeer coat up there with these wooden skis with the leather straps like you see on uh, you know deadly do right <laughs> you know? so we of course we dressed up and took pictures and you know, Steve was right there with that. <laughs> oh, you know, that's right up his alley. Yeah, I uh, mean, and then, uh, just so much fun. Yeah, I just wanted to share a couple of quick Steve stories just because I, I love the guy so much. But uh, for some reason, he nicknamed me T-Bone, which there was nobody more T-Bone <laughs> than Steve, you know, but he would call me T for short. But I remember back when the dorms were over on University Avenue, this was our first year there. And as, as you said, Steve was so about orchestral playing. He was amazing. And, and uh, I remember one Saturday we were practicing next to each other, and then I was like, Steve, I, I can't play. I'm going back. You know? And he's like, no, I'm going to do another hour or two, whatever. He goes, but you know what I want to do? I'm, I'm going to play out the window here, and I'm going to wait till you get across the loop and see if you can still hear me. Like, Steve, <laughs> That's right. Coordinate <laughs> watches. You tell me. What, can this you hear was, at you know, 10, how, how far was that? I mean, <laughs> a quarter Ooh, mile at least. Like 12 maybe minute, half a 12-minute walk, yeah. I remember. So I thought, ah, yeah, whatever, share it, man, if you want. So, so I, sure enough, I get over there by the Loop Lounge, and he's playing Lohengrin, and I hear it, but it's all broken up. But it's like, <laughs> bah, bah, 
ba, 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 ba. And then I could like, <laughs> so I see him at dinner that night. And he's like, so could you hear it? I said, yeah, I heard it. And he's like, yeah. He's just like, so, <laughs> like that was his, uh, his, that was his that's reason what to he be. wanted. Yeah. And then my last uh, memory is, I think, with uh, our excellent cameraman here to today, Kent Smith, who's a great trumpet player in New York, as well as being a superb videographer. Uh, we were out on tour with the Rolling Stones, and we were playing Cleveland. Steve was, of course, in the orchestra at the time. So we had a whole drunken fest at his house. And, and so, of course, I'd had a little bit too much to drink and decided that I should, there's no reason why I can't play Bolero as good as Steve Witzer, which is <laughs> nothing could be farther from the truth ever, but especially at that point. So I had, uh, Kent was there, and, uh, and we were just hanging out, and, and, uh, and I played it, and I looked over at Kent, and Kent was like, yeah, sounds pretty good. And then, uh, then Steve picks up his horn and plays Bolero, and I, I look over at Kent, and Kent's reaction was, that was significantly better. <laughs> That's why you're making $300,000 a year and Steve's only making... <laughs> yeah, unfortunately it wasn't uh, based on uh, much of that at all. But, uh, but anyway, such, it's, it, as you just said, he had such a great spirit about him and it still lives on and his passion for playing was just, it never ended. You know, it's like he just loved it so much. So. Yeah. Here's to, to both Rolf and Steve, uh, <laughs> very important guys, and uh, still giving us, we're laughing about it right now, so it's an uh, yeah. incredible thing for, for, to influence people's <laughs> lives. Well, yeah. speaking of passion, your new passion is making, uh, an additional passion is making mouthpieces, and I understand you're about <laughs> ready to uh, launch uh, the Hartman mouthpiece line. Um, so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about that and where that's headed. And uh, Okay. Uh, you know, everybody has been on a, an equipment or a mouthpiece quest at some point, right? And so, sure. so I, I played, you know, a Bach 42 and a, and a Bach 5G for many years. Most of the recordings that I ever made were on those two pieces of equipment. Uh, but at some point I started to realize uh, that, uh, that I could buzz better, you know, uh, without a mouthpiece than I could on the mouthpiece, and then certainly without the mouthpiece on the trombone. And so just maybe start to think, you know, what's, what's, you know, what's the deal here? And equipment's supposed to help. Mm -hmm. So I started, started sort of exploring, you know, is it possible that my equipment could be better? And so anyway, uh, started with mouthpieces and, and talked to Doug Elliott some and uh, went up to see John and Phyllis Stork. Uh, mouthpiece makers and just sort of experimented and tried to figure out if we could make our mouthpiece, my mouthpiece better for me. Mm. And sort of just basically awakened a sort of a, a side of my my uh, interests that that I've pursued ever since. I went out and bought a lathe which Sean Sork said, you, you'll regret this, I promise you. <laughs> and I re regretted it a lot of times as my wife's regretted it even more. <laughs> So anyway, but I, uh, luckily, you know, for years, I, I, I was I was sort of beating my head against the wall trying to figure out how mouthpieces worked, and so now I, I I actually sort of have started to feel like I understand a lot more and enough that I can can uh, make mouthpieces for myself. I'm trying to get them for my students, and and one one of the things that. You know, we don't need to talk about this too much, but one of the questions I had in my mind is: is there such thing as a good mouthpiece, mm. or is it to depend on the, the right trombone to fit it in? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, one of my you know, my answer to that question is: yes, there is a good mouthpiece, and what does that do? It basically it responds 
accurately. Mm -hmm. Whenever you go, you know, if you do that into it, it should do the same thing. And mm -hmm. if it doesn't, then you're having to contrive what you do in order to make that work, mm. which basically narrows your possibilities because you're sort of standing on one leg already just to make X happen. Right. Uh, so I figured out how to make them respond correctly, and then then, I, then it came clear that a, a good responding mouthpiece wasn't the answer for everything either. It had to actually fit the trombone, and every trombone's slightly different. So, mm -hmm. so I figured out how to sort of balance them and adjust them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's my that's my uh, my angle on it, and, mm -hmm. and that's. Uh, what, you know, finally, you know, I, I feel vindicated and satisfied. You know, if I stopped right here, uh, you know, I, I at least felt like I didn't waste all those years, and I sort of solved the puzzle for mm -hmm. my own self-indulgence. <laughs> well, it's it's more than self-indulgent because you you were showing me the, the one of the prototypes, I guess, uh, but all the various components, which seems to me you're taking it to a, another level than I've seen with mouthpiece making, which is uh, quite interesting. And uh, look forward to to trying the small bore ones when you get to that point, because it looks like you've, you've definitely done some thinking at a deeper level in terms of how the how the mouthpiece works. And uh, so, yeah, with, wish you all the best of luck with that. All right, That's good thanks. Stuff. We'll see. Um, well, let's talk a little bit as we kind of wind down here. We'll talk a little bit about what the future is holding for you. I mean, yeah not only here at Yale, but you, your lovely family, your wife Sarah is a great conductor and uh, she's doing her work and I'm sure you guys are having plans and then the three kids to, in addition to the music side, what's ahead for Scott Hartman in the next uh, couple of decades? Uh, as much self-indulgence as I can <laughs> squeeze out of it. <laughs> you know, you know, it's, you know, basically just like, basically if you can, if you can do what you want to do, that's what I'm talking about, self-indulgement. Yeah. Indulgence, you know, if I yeah. if I don't, uh, you know, if I can just sort of have a enjoy my life doing what I like to do, then how can I complain? Yeah. Now, and at this point, uh, I've got three young kids, and they've they're growing up, and you know, I want to make a good life for them, and sort of give them opportunities and spend time with them. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's I'm uh, I'm I've got to sort of leave time for that. My wife, uh, as you mentioned, is a conductor, and she travels a lot, and. So I want to spend time with her and sort of support her and be there when she's making music. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, uh, I love to travel. That's one reason I do what I do as well because I, I really like going places, mm -hmm. eating great food and seeing, seeing what's, what's out there. Uh, so, so family things are gonna take a lot of my time. Uh, I'm really very happy with the, the school here. It gives, uh, you know, I've got, a, I've, uh, I've got very motivated and talented accomplished students that come to work here and uh, which is again very gratifying for me to work with people that talk to people about things that I love to talk about and mm -hmm. hopefully help them you know move forward in their desires mm -hmm. um, so basically you know the status quo in the sense that I'm going to continue to yeah, try to get better and enjoy uh, you know exploring who I am yeah awesome Great stuff. And my final question is, if you had uh, just one piece of advice to give to younger players, both uh, in terms of maybe thinking about trying to get in here at Yale, and also maybe thinking about, well, I want to be the next Scott Hartman, what do I, what do, I do to do that? <laughs> uh, well, the way you phrase that, that makes me think of some, one of my, my dad's favorite uh, sort of uh, anecdotes from, you know, I had a great, I had great parents in terms of they, were really supportive. They never were, never, 
made me feel guilty or like I should not be playing the trombone or doing what I wanted to do, basically. Mm -hmm. So I'm self-indulgent thanks to my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> they created this monster. <laughs> um, but uh, so they would go with me on auditions uh, and, you know, whatever they happened to be. And so we went to Eastman and I auditioned for Eastman and came back. And, uh, and uh, my, my dad had gone up there and we came back and went to this all area all-state ensemble uh, band. Uh, concert basically and one of my old professors was there who'd gone to Eastman and so my dad was talking to him and and he wanted to know how the audition went and so my dad said well it seemed to go well um, the guy said uh, the teacher Don Knob said that you know we should have a spot here for you you know it's just like you know just uh, you know, wait for your letter and things will things will be you know I think you'll, you'll be pleased and uh, it was one of the first auditions of the year though yeah, so so my so the this local teacher uh, said to my dad, "Well, uh, that sounds really encouraging, you know, but don't get your hopes up. There are a lot of Scott Hartmans out there, <laughs> 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 you know, which uh, which may be true, you know, which." Uh, well, I'm going to have to disagree with him on that one. There's, there aren't a lot of Scott Hartmans out there. That is uh, that's well, for darn Google, sure. Google the name. You know. <laughs> They don't have, most of them don't play trombone, even though Scott P. Hartman plays bass trombone. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so the bottom line with that is, okay, okay so, you know, I'm, I'm unique, and, but I, there's a lot of trombone players, a lot of great trombone players, and that, mm. was, his, that was his message, you know, sure. so like, don't get sure. your hopes up. Mm. Uh, but my message would be the opposite, it's like, you know, so everybody's unique, everybody has got something to offer. You know, maybe, maybe you know, I'm not going to be another... Uh, Steinmeier, you know, mm -hmm. I just don't have those chops. I never will be another Mike Davis, but you know, if I play the, the Shire's trombone, that's the my closest chance. Well, right this there. is a great opportunity for Scott. I happen to have one in the car. Do yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll see what I sound like. <laughs> but I, th I would say, you know, let people, you know, I, I encourage people to explore who they are. You know, make the find the opportunities to get better, mm -hmm. uh, associate with the most talented, smartest. Uh, uh, encouraging people they can, and, and be an optimist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't don't let an opportunity go by without uh, without having a better opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's well said, and that's uh, great great words to live by. So, Scott, thank you so much. It's been an unbelievable. I, I've been looking forward to this for for a long time, and uh, thank you for sit, taking the time and for having us and. Uh, and for all the great things you said, I mean, uh, it was just loaded with great advice musically and, and life-wise. So, uh, so thank you. It was mm -hmm. awesome. I'm flattered to be here. It's uh, always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, likewise, Scott. Thank you all for joining us. I uh, hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And we will see you next time on Bone to Pick.